The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. What is the role of believers to receive the promise of God through Christ? What is the role of believers to receive the promises of God through Christ? If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you are saved and in Christ, every promise is already yours. Every one is already yours. The only sins that we can conquer in our lives are forgiven ones. What I mean is that we can't engage the battle with sin thinking that we have to do something good enough in order to earn God's favor. We need God to be 100% for us already. And in Jesus, He has secured for us already every one of God's promises. So, what is the role of believers to receive the promises of God? Belief. John 1, verse 12, says that specifically. He says, and He defines what it means to believe, he says, to as many who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as received him, who believed in his name. It doesn't say who received him and believed in his name. No, it defines what it means to receive him. It's believing. We could go it the other way. What does it mean to believe? It means to receive. Don't doubt. Don't push away what God has given. Trust the promises of God. Because they're already ours. So, what do we need to do? What's our role? We believe in order to receive. And yet we do so ever remembering Every promise is ours already, but we will not ever fully enjoy all the promises until Christ returns. The second question is, in the Old Testament, God seems to utilize wealth and prosperity for his mission. Do you see discontinuity in using that in the New Testament? I could, so here's the question, in the Old Testament, God seems to utilize wealth and prosperity for his mission. By that, my understanding would be, what you're saying is, for example, the Old Covenant Israel, God says, if you obey me, he's trying to motivate them, love me with all your heart and with all your soul, because if you do, it will be counted righteousness for you. Deuteronomy 6.25. Or, because if you do, you'll enjoy all provision and all protection. So God uses health and wealth promises to motivate 
obedience, and in doing so, as Israel obeys, they will be a light to the nations. That, that's the sense I get. And so the question is, if God used wealth and prosperity for his mission in the Old Testament, is, that a, is there discontinuity in the new? And if you go to the Proverbs, and I thought about spending more time here, but I, I decided not to. But in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and in Job, these wisdom books are about following one of two ways, the way of wisdom or the way of foolishness, the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. And they're often built on the sowing and reaping principle. What you sow, you'll reap, whether blessing or shame. But the reason Job is there and the reason Ecclesiastes is there is because so often in the world today, what you sow does not reap what you expected. The righteous gain what the wicked deserve and the wicked prosper instead of being destroyed. And there are certain Proverbs that wrestle with the same reality. This is our world that doesn't make sense. But what it tells me is that the Proverbs themselves that are focused on future hope, the, that even the writer of the sages themselves, they were not thinking about blessing big barns and full health in the now. They were thinking and confident that even in the old covenant, the blessings that God promised were future and eternal and not in the now. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes and Job are wrestling with the fact the suffering has come. What am I to do with it? God promised if you obey, you'll experience blessing. I'm experiencing curse. That's what's supposed to come if, if you disobey. And what Job and Ecclesiastes tells us is that if you experience suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned. If you sin, you will experience suffering. But if you suffer, it doesn't mean that you've sinned. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 9. The disciples say, is this man born blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents? Jesus says, neither. But he is blind so that God might be glorified in this moment. So, I see continuity in the way that God talks about health and wealth in the New Testament. Continuity with how he talks about it in the Old, but you can only see that continuity if you read the blessings and curses as I think the sages were as eschatological promises and not as promises for the present. If you view them as promises all for the present, then you'll see greater discontinuity. But if you can even understand that the promises of blessing and curse in the Old Covenant had a future orientation beyond this life, then you'll see greater continuity between the Old and the New Covenants. The third one is are there any curses those did not broken 
in Jesus during Old Testament. And the second one is, as if we accept or receive the blessings from OT, are we supposed to receive any curse of OT? Great questions. Okay, so are there any curses that continue today that Jesus didn't break? As I noted, Hebrews chapter 12 uses the language of discipline. It doesn't use the language of curse, but it does use the language of discipline. And it says that Christians should expect it. That language of discipline is exactly the same language in the curses of Leviticus 26. Paul, in Romans chapter 11, what does he say? Note then, Christian, the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness, sorry, severity toward those who have fallen away. But kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul speaks with blessing and curse language. Kindness and severity. Being cut off is curse language. And what he says is, you might think you're a, you say you're a professing believer, but if you run away from God and don't take sin seriously, he's still going to take your sin seriously. But for everyone who takes sin seriously, it's evidence that indeed Christ has worked in you. And God at the final judgment will look at you as if you were a tree and He will see that there was fruit on your tree. Your fruit does not make you alive. It simply proves you're alive. That's how obedience works. It doesn't make you alive. It proves you're alive. That you've been tapped into the life-giving your roots go deep and they're tapped into the life-giving Word of God that, that your trunk is made up of Jesus and now He is working through you producing fruit in your life. When Paul says, at the tree, that is the cross, Jesus bore our curse. Cursed is every man who hangs on the tree. The point is, all those curses in the Old Covenant don't have to be bore by us in a way that counts us as separated from God. Every person who is in Jesus will never be separated. And therefore, you need not fear curses. Many of you have grown up, just like in Balaam's day, with prophets who have declared, wanted to declare curse over you, or from your birth, believing in the spirits, and curses were made over you. In Christ... As in Balaam's day, the curse has no power. And the one who wants to make a curse, God changes it into blessing. Jesus protects us from the wrath of God. But it doesn't mean that the love of God doesn't take the form of discipline, shaping us. There's two kinds of discipline. The discipline that a football player has when his coach says, get out on that field, run one more time, run one more time, run one more time, and you're breathing, and so your, your, your lungs are, 
And the coach is pushing them, pushing them, so that when the game time comes and it's time to make that goal, he knows what to do. It's instinctive. The discipline has shaped him for the battle. Or for the army person, they're training, training, training for war, knowing how to work their gun, knowing how to climb the wall. So that when the moment comes and you're in battle, it's instinctive. You know how to fight. That's one kind of discipline. And God takes us through that kind of discipline today. And it can be painful. The other kind of discipline is the discipline that my child mouths off. I don't have to listen to you. Well, God said you do. And I spank that child on the bottom. Not abusing that child to hurt them, but spanking them to help them. And God disciplines us that way today as well. Where we're going the wrong way and He lets us get caught. You might be a student and you cheated on a test. You plagiarized on a paper. And God lets you get caught. That is severe mercy. He's not letting you go down your way. He's saying, no more. That's not who you're supposed to be. And He catches you in the act in order to to draw you back to Himself, to move you to repentance. Those are levels of curse. They would be defined as curse. But for us, they're no longer curse. It's discipline. It's just discipline. Jesus' blood takes away the curse element so that it's not punishment for wounding. It's now discipline for helping. That's what the blood of Jesus does. So, if we accept or receive, are we supposed to receive any curses from the Old Testament? I would say it matters how you think about it. In the form of discipline, yes. In the form of, think about how God disciplined the the church in Corinth and some people he made sick and some people he even killed so that they already went to be with Jesus. That was a severe mercy so that they would not continue to persevere in their sins. And their sickness was designed, their sickness, not all sickness is due to sin. But some sickness might be. And if you're experiencing sickness, you pause and you say, is there anything in my heart, God? Have I done anything wrong that has brought this upon me? Are you wanting to teach me something? If there's sin I need to repent of, I want to repent. Regardless, any time we're experiencing the brokenness of this world, that's Genesis 3, whenever we experience the brokenness of this world, we're supposed to run back to Genesis 2. To say, I want to be aligned with you, God, living in a context of blessing through Christ so that we fall, we fall toward the cross, not away from the cross. So that every experience of discipline in this age moves us to greater dependence on Jesus. Hoping in Him and believing that all of our suffering puts us in a context to receive grace because he opposes self-reliant, proud people. But in the midst of our neediness, we're reminded, oh God, help me. That's a gift from him. He is made big as the helper and we receive help. 
He is glorified through our dependence. And we receive aid. So that's how I would respond there. The last question is going to be, how do, you, uh, do we differentiate between the promises that are fully enjoyed now and at the second coming of Jesus Christ? Do we have a list? Honestly, okay, so the question is, we know that Jesus has already secured for us all the promises. We're not waiting for some to be fulfilled. He's fulfilled all of them already. He's purchased everything. Our inheritance is full and secure, but we're not enjoying all of the inheritance yet. There's a day coming where nothing in this world that we engage in will be able to hurt us. Where sin will never be a part, where we will never be tempted to look at a woman in an impure way. Never tempted to respond negatively and harshly to our children. Never tempted to laziness or lack of discipline. The day is coming when we will fully be enjoying holiness. We will be like Jesus in His presence. No temptation to sin. It will all be taken away and we will just enjoy Him forever and forever delight in all that He has won for us. But how do we distinguish? This is so practical. How do we distinguish what we can expect today and what we can only expect in the future. And this, I'll, I'll just be honest, this is difficult for me to assess. Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, He says He wants us to believe and to hope when He says... Don't be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So, in his list, it doesn't say the big cars and the biggest house. It says what we will eat, what we will drink, and what we will wear. Seek first His kingdom, and you'll have clothes. You'll have food, and you'll have a house, or some shelter. And then Paul says, my God will supply all of your needs. I've learned to live in want and to live in plenty. Paul hungered. And what that means, because I want us to be able to believe, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And I can believe it. That all my needs will be met now. And yet, apparently, with a promise that God will supply all of our food... Paul could still have a season of hunger 
and it not and God not be breaking his law. That Paul at times was cold, it said. He had to sleep out in the rain and he didn't have a cloak to cover him and he shivered and God was being faithful to him as a believer in that moment. That what he needed, God promised I'll meet all of your needs. He didn't need a cloak at that time. What he needed was a reminder that Jesus was enough. So I don't have specifics to say you can expect you'll never hunger. I'm never going to say that because Paul hungered. But Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and God will provide all the food that you ever eat. And he'll give you the clothes that you need. He'll put a shelter over your head. You can feel comfortable to leave all. Say goodbye to house. Say goodbye to friends. And move from Addis after you get your degree and move to southeastern Ethiopia in the Somali region and pour out your life for the sake of the gospel and see the advance of the cross among Muslims who reject you, who persecute you. You can do that because Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I will supply, you need not fear. Think about Jesus who said, you leave house and mother and sisters and brothers for my sake. In this life you will reap a hundredfold houses and mothers, sisters and brothers with persecutions. Jesus said, many of you, they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's the kind of hope we need to have. Trusting today that Jesus will be enough and just having a heart that says, I'm going to let you decide what my needs are, Jesus, but you've promised that you'll meet them. I had a missionary who came back to the States after his first term, three years on the mission field, and he said, my hardest part was not holding God to promises he never made. The prosperity gospel is seen in our hearts when we have a sense of entitlement. We get a cold and we say, this isn't how it should be. Or when a car pulls out in front of us and we say, that was wrong. We think we deserve better somehow. What Jesus experienced was rejection, rejection, rejection. And the servant is not above his master. And I say this, and it's very hard for me. When I see how easy it is in my, my life, I, I have a home, I have six children, I have a car to drive to work, I have a job that is secure. I get to fly across the ocean and come share with you a church that supported me. I'm not coming here saying, look at me, 
all is well. I don't want to do that. I'm tried today to point us to the Word and say, look at what God has said. Like Job, God could take all of my life. My wife could get in a car accident and her and all of my children die while I am here. Right now, the United States is working on, there's people in the government that are wanting to alter, change the laws so that every institution, every theological institution would have to say it's okay for homosexuals to come and teach at your school. If they make that law, my school will have to say no and we will lose, we won't be able to be a school anymore. That could happen and all of a sudden, I'm wondering, where's my job? I don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. But we know this. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus is for us 100% because he died and has forgiven our sins. And he has all of his righteousness. God is counted toward us, so we rest secure in him. And so we hold fast to his promises, looking to the future and delighting in the present. We can't claim that he will never let us hunger. Don't tell your people they will never hunger if they become a Christian. Don't tell your people that they will never get cold or that they'll never be, that they'll never suffer or have persecution or get cancer because that's not true. Christians die every day. Christians are persecuted every day. But in Christ, we have hope. That's, my ho- that's what I'm trying to communicate today. Every one of the promises is truly ours now, and it will be fully ours in the future. So you want to shape a people as you minister. You want to shape a people who are grounded in the promises of God, celebrating the bigness of God and the hope of all that God has secured for us in Jesus. And then they can say, I know that he will never leave or forsake me. And if that's all that I have, that's enough because all the rest is coming in the future. Thank you so much. Uh, That was wonderful. God bless you. Saying all that, I think uh, for sure you all benefited a lot from this presentation, from this great presentation. And God bless you so much. It's indeed a blessing to have you here. I would invite Dr. Fares to do concluding remarks and then dismiss us at Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.